0: All right, good morning. Good morning. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 18, the gospel of Luke chapter number 18. And I wanted to thank the faculty and uh, Pastor Chapel and ultimately the Lord for this opportunity to come before you, uh, my fellow students, and be able to preach the word. So we're going to be in Luke chapter number 18 this morning. And once you have found your spot, I want you, I want everyone in this room to look at me once you've found your spot. And I want you to do something for me, okay? I would like you to turn to the person next to you. Go ahead. Go look at the person next to you. And I want you to ask yourself a question. I don't want you to answer this question out loud. It may it may show on your face, but I don't want you to answer this out loud. I would like you to ask yourself this question. In what way am I superior to this person? How am I better than this person? Maybe maybe if you're a guy in this room, maybe if you're a guy you say maybe I can bench a little bit more than this person. And you know If you're a guy and you're sitting next to your girlfriend, I hope you can bench more than this person. Can I get an amen, amen. Maybe you think to yourself, I definitely have better grades than this person. Maybe you think to myself, I have a lot less demerits than this person. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be, we all find ourselves comparing ourselves one to another. It's human nature to to look to the people around us and, and have those comparisons in our heart And you know, maybe these questions that I just asked you to ask yourself, maybe they hold absolutely no bearing on your life. Maybe you could care less how much you can bench. Maybe you can care less what grades you get. Maybe you can care less about how many demerits you have. But how often do we actually go into this community or do we actually stay here on campus? And we look to the people around us and we compare ourselves in the ways that actually matter. Well, in Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin reading in verse number nine, Christ gives us a parable of one who has compared himself to his brother. Beginning in verse number 9, it says, And he, being Christ, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, so the Pharisees. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but he smote his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." Like I said, maybe those questions that I ask you to ask yourself how hold absolutely no bearing on your life. But there are some questions that we do need to ask ourselves that will determine our destiny as we go to serve the Lord. How often do we go out into this community? Do we go to Walmart or to work? and we see that person. You know, my, my dad would always tell me, he said, Ben, if you ever need a self-esteem abo- a self-esteem boost, uh, just go to Walmart after dark. You will see things that you wish you would have never seen in your entire life in Walmart after dark. And here in Lancaster, you can just go anytime and you can see <laughs> things that you, you, you wish you would have never seen. But, and you know, we laugh about that, but how often do we do that? Do we go to Walmart or do we go out into this community and we see someone and we think, this person doesn't even de- deserve a minute of my time. Look at this person, they're not even in the right mind, look at the way they're dressed, look at the way they keep themselves, look at how they're handling their children, when we are supposed to be reaching those people. How are we, as West Coast Baptist College students, who are training to be laborers for his harvest, too scared to get our hands dirty in the fields? Today, or this morning, I would like us to examine three elements of the publican's prayer as we look at this publican today. First, I would like us to see a right view of the holy. In verse 13, it says, and the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven. You see, this publican, this tax collector, he understood that true justification, true repentance always starts with a fear of the Lord. He, He understood that who he was and who God was. You see, this tax collector, tax collectors in that time, they were looked at as traitors by their brothers. And... Often they were rejected; they were spat upon because of what their role in society was, and this publican understood that. He understood that he did not deserve to be where he was in that temple, worshiping God along with the rest of Israel. But he understood how lowly he was. He knew who God was. You know, growing up, um, I was a pretty—I was a pretty dense kid, even as a teenager. I was a very dense kid, I I just did not understand a lot. My my family's coming for graduation and they can tell you story after story. Uh, In fact, uh, this is is 100% true. My mom, when I was a senior in high school, uh, she legit looked at me in the face, and she was joking, but she looked at me in the face and said, Ben, I hope you stay dumb forever so you never have to go to college. And you can ask her that when she comes here. I was not smart, but I always understood one thing. And my siblings and I, we always understood one thing, and that was that if you were ever gonna do something that would get you in trouble, you do not want dad to get involved. And we understood that primarily because we knew dad was harsher than mom, but we also understood we had that respect of dad. We knew that our provision, our protection, our our very livelihood depended on this man. And not only that, but he also loved us and he cared for us and he wanted us to have the best life possible. And because of that, not just the fear, but the respect and the reverence. And that is how this publican saw God. The Pharisee didn't understand this. He saw God as this good luck charm, as this genie in a bottle, who as he would give tithes to the poor and that as he would give that of all that he possessed and that he would hold the law, he believed that that earned him favor with God. He believed that he could come as who he was and God owed him. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we come to an altar like this? We hear Dr. Getsch, we hear Dr. R. Preach, and we come to this altar and we say, God, I will give you my life if. God, I will surrender to go to missions if. When it should be God, I surrender, period. The Pharisee didn't understand, but the publican did. He had the right view of the holy, but not only did he have a right view of the holy, but secondly, he had a right view of himself. It says, and the publican standing afar of off would not lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican understood who he was. How often do we as Bible college students, do we look to each other, and like I said, we compare ourselves with each other? How often do we take a final, take a midterm, and we don't get the grade we want? We see someone who gets one better. How often do do we receive uh, that critical word from a dorm soup or from Brother and Mrs. Blem? And we don't take it correctly. We, we, We stick out our chest and say, but he doesn't understand the work I do. He doesn't understand the stress I have back home. He doesn't understand everything I am doing for this place. When really, we should come with a heart of humility. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, be not angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. You see, in our own minds, we have, we have this standard that we hold ourselves up to and that we hold everyone else around us up to, when really we should be holding ourselves to God's standard. Because in God's eyes, when we, look, when we see the scope of eternity, when we see the glory of God and for who he really is, when we have this right view of the holy, we are nothing. We do not deserve to be here. We do not deserve, I do not deserve to be standing here. You do not deserve to be sitting there. Why? Because God could have used anything. He could have used a voice from heaven. He could have used fire coming down. He could, he could choose to save everyone on earth at once, but he has chosen to use you, and he has chosen to use me. So not only do we see a right view of the holy and a right view of himself, but thirdly and finally today, he, we see a righteous veneration of humility. A righteous veneration of humility. Christ sums up this parable in verse 14 in our text. If you read it with me, it says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the publican, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, God makes it very clear throughout Scripture that the one thing he values the most of his servants and last time I checked, that's me, that's you. The one thing that he values the most is not if you can sing, it's not if you can play an instrument, it's not if you can preach, it's if you're humble. And why? It's because at the end of the day, when this world is gone, God wants the world to look at us. But he does not want the world to see Benestrada. He does not want the world to see you. He does not want the world to see Dr. Getch or Pastor Chapel. He wants the world to see him through us. And why is that? It's because he is the one who has fearfully and wonderfully made us. He is the one who held that cross, not us. He is the one who will bring judgment to this world, not us. God deserves the glory. God deserves the credit. And if we don't understand that, he can't use us. In James 4, chapter 6, Uh, In James 4, 6, it says, Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And you know, when we have that right view of God, when we have that right view of ourselves, it's easy. Like I said earlier, when we understood who Dad was, it was easy to follow the rules. Because we understood how much we depended on him. We understood we couldn't do much without him. How much can we do without God? And the answer is nothing. And once we understand that, we can know And it's easy to give God the glory. So let us examine our lives today. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to look to the person next to you and ask yourself some questions. But now, I want you to look into your own life. Look deep into your own life, into your heart, who you really are. And I would like you to ask yourself two questions. First, who is God to me? Who is God to me? Because if God, if all he is, is that genie in a bottle, if all he is, is this person who's waiting to swoop in and save me when I need it, if he's the one who I make deals with at this altar, then that's the wrong view of God. Because God is so much more than that. That cross says everything we need to know about God. In Psalms, Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist writes in verse number 3 When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of man that thou visitest him? We never deserve to even hear God's voice, but he did not only come to spend time with us and to teach us, he came and died for us. And my friend, Maybe you're sitting here today, and you're trusting in your works, like this Pharisee. You're trusting in your tithe. You're trusting in that bus route you work on. You're trusting in that parent who's a pastor to get you to heaven. But God said, the Pharisee who believed the same way was not justified. It was this publican who understood the grace of God. He understood who he was and his dependence on God. He was the one who went home justified. Maybe you're sitting here. Maybe you're a freshman. Maybe you're a junior, even a senior, master's student. Or maybe you're one of the uh, visiting families today, and you don't know for sure that Christ is your Savior, or you've been trusting in your own works to get you there. My friend, justification does not come that way. And that is our job, West Coast Baptist College students. There's a world that believes that that is how you get to heaven, but we know it is not. It's by the grace of God and the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ alone. So let us ask ourselves that first question, who is God? And secondly, ask yourself, who am I to meet? Because if you think you are God's gift to West Coast, if you think you're the one who's going to pastor Lancaster Baptist Church too, that's the wrong view of yourself, friend. God doesn't need us, but he has chosen to use us, if we will be humble. If not, he will resist us, as James says. And the answer to those two questions, who is God to me and who am I to me, those questions will determine the direction of your life. Will you have the Pharisees' prayer or will you have the publicans' prayer?
1: Stand please. Everyone standing. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. What a great message. Thank you so much, Brother Ben. <laughs> redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed reading by the blood of the lamb redeemed redeemed his child and forever i am
2: Well, if you have your Bibles today, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and we will begin reading in verse 21. It says in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be afar from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everyone savors something. The Greek word for savor is is spherneo, and it has this connotation of a point of view or to set one's affection on or to delight in. And we see in our modern English vernacular that we typically associate this word savor with food, and we, we typically, we will savor this food over that food or we'll delight in this or whatever the case may be. And we typically associate this with food, and within the menu of the Christian life, there are only two things you can savor this morning. The things that be of God or those that be of men. And we see that Jesus rebuked Peter in this passage because he savored the things of men. What are you savoring today? What are you delighting in? What are the things of God or the things of this world that you are savoring in? Today from God's word, let us look at three essential actions if we want to savor the things of God. First, we must deny ourselves. If you look at verse 24, it says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You see, we see in the context of this passage that, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and his disciples just affirmed in verse 20 that, hey, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God and that's why in verse 21 it says, from that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples his ultimate purpose and he, after establishing that, hey, I am the son of God, Jesus began to, the, for the first time in his ministry, he explicitly told his disciples what his ultimate plan and purpose was for coming to this world and that was to die on the cross for the sins of the world, so that we can get to heaven. But you can imagine the disciples, after hearing this for the first time, they didn't expect Jesus to come this way. They expect him to reign as the messianic, uh, bring in the messianic kingdom, and they expected him to rule, but they weren't expecting him to, to suffer, and more or less to be killed. And Peter, after hearing these words, he responds in fervor, and the Bible says he turned him aside and says, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You know, at first glance, Peter's response seems natural and, you know, it seems out of love. But notice Jesus' reply in verse 23. He said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. How did we go from verse 17 where Jesus is saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, to six verses later, get thee behind me, Satan. Why did Jesus reply in such a harsh way? Well, we see the reason in verse 23, it's at the end of it, it says, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men you see, Jesus very clearly stated what the will of the Father was. He he very clearly stated in verse 21 that, hey, I must go unto Jerusalem, and, and I must suffer many things, and I must be killed, and praise be to God that he must be raised again. But Peter, he couldn't understand that. And we see in the passage that Peter, we don't really know his heart, and we don't really know what Peter is thinking, but all we do know for sure is that Peter did not savor the things of God. When he savored the things of men and that is why he couldn't see the big picture peter couldn't understand why jesus had to suffer and it is when we start to savor the things of men that we lose sight of the will of god and we do not understand his plan and his purpose in our life what are you savoring in today that you are delighting in last semester i Um, was dealing with a couple things and um, kind of just really burnt out and um, just lacked a lot of motivation. And um, it came to a point where I decided to seek counsel um, other than my family. And um, I went to Dr. Shetler and we had a couple counseling sessions. And, you know, we were trying to diagnose what the problem was and he kept asking me questions and I just, I answered them honestly. But we we never came to come to a conclusion. And as I was sitting in Dr. Shetler's office, all of a sudden he he said, Oh, wait, hold on just a moment. I I got a text on my phone. Oh. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, excuse me. A, a pastor just texted me. He said, Man, Dr. Shettler, you preached a great sermon today. I'm so happy that you did that. And as soon as he said that, he said, Is that what you're living for? As I sat in my chair, I just remember tears began to flow to my face as I realized, I began to savor the things of men. I began to savor the things of this world. I began to savor men's approval rather than God's approval. I began to savor a position, a power, an authority. I began to savor recognition. And that is why I became burnt out, because I lost sight of what was truly important. And college student, what are you savoring in today? Is it glory? Is it that you get glorified and that you can get recognized and that people will pat you on the back and say, good job? Or are you seeking the glory of the Father? Are you seeking in this world your ambition, your will, your dreams? Or are you seeking what God wants you to do? Is that what we're living for? 1 John 2.15, it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, if we begin to savor the things of the world, there's no way you can have an appetite for God. There's no way you can have an appetite and you can desire what God wants. The Bible says if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. And if we're going to savor the things of God, we must deny ourselves. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he had to learn, I've got to die daily. And he said, I've got to mortify the deeds of the flesh, and I've got to bring my body under subjection. And Paul had to die to himself, and he had to deny himself. And Paul said, yeah, I've got to die to what Paul wants to do. I've got to die to what I want to do. My ambition, my dreams, my glory. and I've got to seek the will of the Father. Even Jesus himself in John 5.30 says, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And I do all those things that please the Father. Now, although we may not understand God's will, and although everything may not make sense, we ought to submit to his will and to his calling in our lives. And unlike Peter who heard that and he said, Be it far from thee, Lord, we ought to say, Let it be so. Not my will. Not Davi's will. But thine be done. We must deny ourselves. But secondly, we must take up our cross. Matthew 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Notice it is not a general cross. It does not say the cross. As there's only one who bore the cross for our sins. And the only one who did that was Jesus Christ. And he bore the cross of Calvary for his sins. And Peter, he he couldn't understand that, and why did Jesus Christ have to take up the cross? Well, so that you and I could one day go to heaven. And that we believe in the cross of Jesus Christ, and we believe in the gospel that, hey, if you recognize that you're a sinner, if you recognize that Jesus Christ, that you're the Son of God, and only through you we can get to heaven, that He died on the cross for our sins, and that He rose again, then you can be saved. And that is the reason why Jesus Christ came to the end. He bore the cross of Calvary for us. And he's calling us this morning, as I bore the cross of Calvary, follow me. And hey, you're going to have to deny yourself. But secondly, take up your cross. It doesn't say the cross, but notice what it does say. It says, take up, if any man will take up his cross. You see, your cross to take is different than mine. My cross to take is different from yours. And everyone in here, God has given you a specific cross to take up this morning you know this may be in the form of persecution or maybe a trial in your life maybe a suffering that you've experienced this semester but we see that in philippians chapter 3 that paul said hey i count all those things but loss for whom i've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that i may win christ and paul said that i may know him in the power of resurrection. God, I want to know you in the high times and not only in the high times. God, I want to know you in the low times. I want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings. And too many times, college student, we want to know God in the power of his resurrection. We want to stand behind the pulpit. We want, we want to stand behind the lecture. We want to teach and preach the gospel. We're willing to stand in the power of his resurrection, but we're not willing to be in the fellowship of his sufferings. We're not willing to know him in the low times, when things aren't going great, when God, when it seems like all is lost, when our finances aren't coming through. When someone may die in our family member, we we are not willing to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said that I may know him. Christian, this morning, I'm not here to say I I can fathom what what cross you're taking up. But all I'm saying is if any man will come after me, if you're going to follow Jesus, you must savor the things of God. You must take up your cross. And yes, it may be difficult. And yes, it may be hard. But can i just encourage you with some good news today you don't have to bear it alone bible says come unto me all ye that are labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for i am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and christian when you when you deny yourself god not my will but thine be done You say, I've got this cross in my life, God, it's hard, it's heavy but I'm going to take up that cross for your name's sake because I want to follow you. I'm going to take up my cross. Then you're going to find the faithful friend. He's going to come right alongside you. And he's going to hold up that cross for you and say, listen, son, come on to me. I can carry that cross for you. And if I carried the cross of Calvary for you, if I forgave you of your sin, if I loved you so much, if I carried your sin far as the east is from the west, and I can carry the cross of suffering for you. I can carry the cross of trial, of persecution of whatever cross you're taking this morning because he carried the cross and he can give you rest for your souls today. May we take up our cross and follow him because he's a good and holy father. But finally today, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross, but we must follow Jesus. Verse 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This might seem a little redundant, But Jesus is basically saying, hey, if any man will come after me, hey, if you want to follow me, then follow me. And when you follow me, follow me again. And when you follow me, follow me. And when you follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. And this is a continual process, and this is a daily process. You're going to have to daily get up, and you're going to have to daily deny yourself, and you're going to have to daily take up your cross, and you're going to have to daily follow him. And when we continue to do this cycle for the rest of our lives, one day, in verse 28, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. And one day we're going to stand before the Father. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ, the one who bore the cross of Calvary. We're going to stand before him, and if you followed him, then he's going to say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Christian, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Oh, may we savor the things of God and not the things of this world. This summer, may we deny ourselves. May we take up our crosses each and every morning. And may we follow him. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And this summer... I pray that we will savor in the things of God, for He is worthy.
1: Stand again. Amen. There is a name I love to hear, oh, how I love Jesus. there is a name i love to hear i love to sing it's worth it sounds like music in mine ear the sweetest name on earth oh how i love jesus oh how i love jesus oh how i love jesus because he first
3: loved me. You see that, please? All right, take your Bible today. We're going to be going to Joshua chapter number seven. Joshua chapter number seven. Right here in Israel's history, they are on their way to the promised land, the land that God promised to give them. Right before Joshua chapter seven, in chapter six, we see a chapter of obedience, of submission to God, and of complete victory. But in chapter 7, we see the complete opposite happen. We see defeat, we see sorrow, we see pain, we see the death of people. And that happened because of the secret sin of one man. And we can read, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, "...but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel." And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethsaven on the east of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to labor scissors, for they are but few. So there went up scissor of the people, about three thousand men. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty. And six men, for they chased them before the gate unto Shebarim and smote them into going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted, and became as water. Private sin leads to public devastation. Now I one hundred percent believe that everyone in here knows that sin is wrong. I one hundred percent believe that everyone in here knows that God hates sin. But Achan knew that too. So we have to ask ourselves, do we have secret sin in our own lives? You see, so many things happened, so many things went wrong because of one man and the sin that he thought that he could keep secret. And today as Christians, we need to understand that sin is not worth it. and that we need to abstain from sin in our own lives. So that's why today from Joshua chapter 7, we need to see three truths about secret sin in our own lives. The first truth that we see today is that sin uses deception. What caused the downfall of Israel against Ai was the sin of Achan. But that process of sin in Achan's life started when he was deceived. It started when he heard the command of God, knew what he wasn't supposed to do, but he saw the gold and the silver and decided, you know what? I can get away with that. You know, know, I can take this. I can hide this under my tent. And no one's going to know. Achan was deceived by his sin in this thinking. He convinced himself into thinking that no one would find out. He convinced himself into thinking that God would not find out. And when I look at this chapter, I, I, I so quickly want to judge Achan. How could he do this? How could he be so selfish with his sin? How could he put so many people in danger? We do the, a lot of times the exact same things in our own lives. A lot of times the exact same thing. Every single time we choose sin. Every single time we succumb to temptation. We are deceived. We are convincing ourselves that we can hide it from the Lord. The psalmist writes in chapter 90, verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. If I I asked a question right now, a question we all love, what are some non-communicable attributes of God? So many of us would raise our hands, "Oh, oh, I got one, I got one. Omnipresence. No, 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 pick me, pick me. Omniscience, omniscience. Do we treat God like he's omnipresent and omniscience? in regards to our sin? Do you realize that Achan didn't realize this? We need to realize this this today. When we sin, we are sinning to the face of a holy God. It's not the fact that God's going to find out. It's the fact that he watched you do it. Achan convinced himself that no one would know. Satan's been using deception to get us to sin since, since since the Garden of Eden. You shall not surely die. Did God really say you can't have that? He, he, he tricked Adam and Eve in the eating of the fruit into the thinking that they could hide from God. And that same deception, we've been falling for that for, this past, for thousands of years. Just like Adam and Eve, it doesn't matter how many fig leaves they used to cover up, God was going to know. It didn't matter how deep Achan dug under his tent to put that gold and silver, God was going to know. We can't be deceived by our sin into thinking that we can hide it from God. Sin uses deception. And we also see today that sin brings destruction. In verse 3, describing Ai, Joshua says, because they are but few. In this chapter, God intended to give them victory. Especially after Jericho, Ai was nothing compared to it. We don't even have to send everyone. That way we don't have to get everyone tired. We only need 3,000 men. We can do this. We, We can take the victory. This is for us. This is a small place. 36 men died that day. 36 wives with no husband. 36 children with no father. Why? Because of Achan. Because Achan brought sin into his life and saw destruction because of it. What Achan didn't realize then, and what we have to realize now, is that when you invite sin to come in, you invite sin to take over. When you invite sin to come in, you invite destruction along with it. See, Achan might not have done this if he knew, if he knew that people were gonna die. If he knew that AI would have been would have been victorious in the battle against Israel. He might not have done this, but the thing is, when we invite sin into our life, we cannot determine the consequence. Sin brings its own consequence. Sin has its own severity. It doesn't matter if it's just one sin. It doesn't matter if we're like, oh, it's something small, it's something private. No one's gonna know, it's not gonna affect anybody. We don't determine that. God hates all sin. All sin is wicked. All sin is unholy. Whatever type of gold and silver that is in your life right now, it is going to bring destruction. One of the scariest verses in this chapter to read in regards to secret sin is found in verse 12. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. The Bible says this, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. This is what the Lord says to Joshua, neither will I be with you anymore, except ye destroy the accursed thing from among you. By allowing sin into his life, Achan lost the power and presence of God. It was not just himself, but with his entire nation. Achan lost the presence and power of God because he thought that he could bring sin into his life and nothing would happen. And sin didn't just affect him, it affected everyone. Sin doesn't just have a personal effect on us. It has a social radius. You have to ask yourselves, we have to ask ourselves the question, is our sin worth it? Is it worth losing the presence and power of God in your life? Is it worth putting in danger the college that we're in? Many of us this summer are going to different ministries. Many of us have internships or we're going back home. Some of us are even interning here. But you have to understand, when we decide to keep secret sin, we are putting those people that we're going to go serve with in danger. That bus route might not see anything happen because of sin in your life. Those doors that you knock again and again and again, and you're wondering, why don't I see any fruit, Lord? It's because you have secret sin in your life. God wanted to give the victory to AI, and God wants to give victory to you today, but so many of us, God's trying to give us victory, but our hands are full of iniquity, and we don't wanna let go. We wanna say, hey God, I can keep this. I don't wanna get rid of this in my life. I don't want to get rid of my sin. It's it's worth something to me. This is gold and silver. That gold and silver is not worth it. It's not worth the destruction it will bring to your life and your ministry and to those around you. The Bible says in Micah chapter 3 verse 4, Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they behave themselves ill in their doings. It's not worth losing the presence and power of God. Sin uses deception. Sin brings destruction. Most importantly today, we need to understand that sin needs deliverance. What's the solution? What did Israel have to do? Well, in the next verse, in in verse 13, the Lord says this. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus Saith the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed sin in the midst of thee. O Israel, thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed sin from among you. The answer is simple. In order to bring back the presence of God, we must get rid of the presence of sin. We have to eliminate that sin from our lives. Stop holding on to what's hurting you and the people around you. Stop holding on to what's keeping God's power and presence away from you. Stop holding on to the thing that's causing you to lose the AIs and stop defeating Jerichos. Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord. We can't leave the presence of sin and want the presence of God. They they don't coexist. We know God's holy. We know God's righteous. We know God's character, yet so many times, We are tricked into thinking that this isn't going to hurt anything. That maybe these videos I watch back in the dorm room, is not going to cause any harm. Maybe these things I say behind the back of a faculty member, is not going to do anything wrong. Maybe this person I'm making fun of or gossiping about, no one's going to know. It's in private. It's just me and my friend. Listen, God knows. Sin has an effect. Sin has a consequence. And we need deliverance. One of the greatest examples in the sense of sin's effect, but also sin's deliverance, is the issue of our salvation. Adam and Eve were tricked that day in the garden. They brought upon the fall of man. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The destruction for the wages of sin is death. That payment of sin is death. We're supposed to go to hell. But God loves you. God loves me. God loves us enough to send his son to die on the cross to send his son to die on the cross, resurrect the third day, and take away our sins. But in order to receive that free gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, we need to go to Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to go to God and confess. The Bible says in Proverbs, he that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. My freshman year, me and my friends thought it'd be a good idea to bring something into the dorm. My roommate calls me; he's like, "You need to come right now. I have a cardboard box with the coolest thing in the world in it." And I, 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 come rushing over to the dorm. I'm all excited, and I begin to look. He tells me to look in the cracks; don't open the box, but look in the cracks. And I see, well, I see, I see something, and it just steals my heart immediately. It, it, it's a cute black puppy with wings. Most people call it a bat, but to me, it was a cute black puppy with wings. And I I thought, I'm just like, oh my goodness, we need to keep this bat. We bring it up to the dorm room, we go up, Lawrence 207, I remember like it was yesterday. My room leader immediately is telling me how bad of an idea that is. And I know that, but I'm saying, oh, I'm a freshman, I don't know, but we know bats aren't allowed. (laughs) So, we decided to, I I said, okay, we're going to go to Wednesday night ministry, you know, church starts in an hour, after church, let's figure out what to do with it, let's just keep it in the room till then, it'll be in the box, there's tape on it, it'll be fine. We finish our ministries. I'm on the way back to my dorm. I'm walking up the stairs, and I hear screams so high-pitched I thought that there was girls in the Lawrence dorm. (laughs) I walk into my room, and I see the box on the floor wide open. I see this bat flying all over the room. There's four or five guys with brooms trying to get that thing down. There's shattered glass in the corner. There's pictures and books knocked over. You see, what I once thought was, you know, something that was harmless that we could bring in, I was deceived by that bat. We brought it into our rooms, the box was open. The box I brought it in with didn't keep it for long. Destruction immediately. And it didn't just attack my stuff, it attacked the stuff of the innocent roommates as well. You wanna know the only way for us to solve that situation was to open the door and get it out. I tried to catch it, I really did. It did not work. The only solution was to open that window and get it out of there as quick as we can and that is the exact same solution that we need for our sins. Bring it to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. Get freedom from those sins and start to see victory in your life because of what God wants to give you. The chapter ends with Achan and his family being stoned. Only then was Israel able to see victory again. Do you want the Lord to say to you, neither will I be with you anymore? Your sin's not worth that much. Your sin's not worth nothing at all. Let go of your sin and hold on to God. It's going to be for the sake of yourself, your future family, your future ministry. Anything that you want, any type of influence or impact on, don't let your sin bar you from that. Get rid of the presence of sin and bring in the presence of God.
1: standing again, please. Victory in Jesus. i heard an old old story how a savior came from glory how he gave his life on calvary to save a wretch like me i heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning then i of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love
4: If you could, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. We're going to begin by reading just the first verse of 1 Samuel 16, but if you could leave your Bibles open, we're going to be looking back throughout the entire chapter, throughout the course of our message today. I'll give you just a moment to turn there, and while you're turning there, the nation of Israel is really facing a, a vital moment in the history of their nation. You see, for long, the nation of Israel had been a theocracy meaning they were ruled by God, God was their king. But the people of Israel began to look on the other nations and the earthly kings that they had and they began to grow discontented. The Bible says that these men of Israel came to Samuel the prophet and they said, Samuel, we want a king like the other nations have. And so Samuel took it to God and God said, okay, I think they're gonna find out that they don't really want this, but I'll give it to them. And so God gave them King Saul. The Bible says that King Saul started out great. He was little in his own sight, and God used King Saul. But then King Saul allowed pride to sweep into his life, and he turned his back on God and began to disobey him. And the Bible tells us that God refused him from being king. And now God is coming to Samuel, and he's going to send out Samuel to anoint the next king of Israel. And that's where we pick up here in our text, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, if you could bring your attention there. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Samuel... How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I'll send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. God prepares us in the pastures before he ever places us in the palace. I love the game of basketball. I've played basketball since the third grade is when I began playing and I ate drank, slept, breathed, everything else, basketball. That was all I did. I'm also very competitive by nature so I always wanted to be the very best basketball player that I could be and so I I would soak up any piece of advice or or quote that I could get in respects to being a good basketball player. I think the greatest quote that I was ever given or the greatest piece of advice was given to me in 10th grade by my trainer Iman. And Iman said, Job, any move that you see a player do in the NBA in a game is a move that that player has first prepared for and practiced thousands and thousands of times in the gym. You see, Job, no move that he does in a game is just something that he just comes up with on the spot and just manufactures it and makes it happen. No, he has prepared for that move ahead of time. And today we all say, of course, Job, that's pretty simple advice. You don't just come up with something on the spot, you prepare for it. But isn't that so often how we view ministry? Oh God, one day when I'm out in ministry, when when I'm in the palace, then I'll serve you. Then I'll go soul winning every Saturday. God, one day when I'm out in the palace, when I'm out in ministry, then I'll start reading my Bible daily and I'll have a walk with you. Oh God, one day when I'm out in ministry, then I'll get the sin out of my life and, and then I'll begin to live a sanctified life. But college students, it doesn't work that way. You see, God prepares us in the pasture before he ever places us in the palace. For just a few moments today, I want to look at the preparation time of the greatest king to ever rule in Israel. God called him a man after his own heart. But before King David was ever anointed as king or seen in the limelight or known by anybody, God saw a teenager that was preparing himself in the pasture for whatever God had for his life. Hey, can I ask you today, what are you doing with your time in the pasture? we look at our text today, and as we look at David's life in the pasture, I want us to notice three traits that we should also be developing in the pasture season. Number one, if you notice with me, we need to be pure. So in verse number one, God sends out Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And Samuel obeys. He goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse comes out along with his sons lined up. And in verse six, we see that Samuel begins to look at these sons, and he looks at the oldest brother of David first. If you could look with me at verse number six. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For, man, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart." Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, and he sees these boys, and he sees Eliab. I'm sure Eliab was strong and tall. He probably had that leader look that Brother Weaver often talks about. Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is him. But the Bible says that God refused him. Why is that? Because he had a dirty heart. You know, I believe that God understood that what was on the inside would eventually come out for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You see, Eliab was refused because he had a dirty heart, but I want us to now turn our attention to David. In Acts 13, God called David a man after his own heart, and we're going to see in a minute that God anointed David as king, but friends, can I say that it didn't just happen when he got in the palace. David didn't just Get anointed as king and come into the palace and then he just flipped a switch and all of a sudden he had a pure heart. No, it began in the pasture. David had a pure heart in the pasture. I love chocolate milk. Does anybody else in here love some chocolate milk? Amen. Amen. I also have a cup with me today, and we're gonna do a little a little game real quick. Now I'm gonna explain first and then and then we'll go. I'm going to count down from three, and when I say go, the first person to raise their hand is going to be able to have this chocolate milk and use this cup to drink it after chapel today. Three, two, one. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. No hands yet. I want to tell you a little bit about my cup first. This is a special cup to me. It means a lot. Um, This isn't any ordinary cup. In fact, this is a multi-purpose cup. Um, You know, you can use it to drink out of, but... I'll just give you a little illustration. Earlier this morning, I accidentally dropped my pen in the toilet back in the dorm, and obviously I didn't want to reach my hand in there to grab it out, and so I was able to use this cup to scoop in and grab that pen out with, but that's not what makes this cup special. The thing that makes this cup special is that I was able to do that. I don't have to wash it out. I I just left it just as it is, and I can still drink out of this cup with it and have some chocolate milk right now, even after doing that. It's pretty special. How many of you in here now would uh, like to have some chocolate milk out of this cup after the service? Nobody. Why? Because it's a dirty cup. You see, if anybody in here today were to pour chocolate milk into this cup and drink from it, we would think they were crazy because it's a dirty cup. Yet why is it that we live lives of filth and then expect God to use us? Hey, college students, can I ask you today, if you wouldn't use a dirty vessel, then why should God? We see in the pasture that David learned to have a pure heart, but secondly, I want us to notice that he learned to be obedient. A chapter before in our text, in chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but for sake of time, God comes to King Saul. God says, Saul, I remember what the Amalekites did to my people Israel. I remember as Israel came out of Egypt and the Amalekites would attack from behind. And Saul, I want to avenge my people Israel for what they did, and I'm gonna use you to do that. And he gives this specific command. He says, Saul, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I don't want you to leave anything. Kill the people, kill the king, kill the possessions, kill the animals. There should be nothing left. And Saul goes and he defeats the Amalekites, but 1 Samuel 15, 9 tells us that Saul spared the king and the best of the animals and the possessions. You see, Saul said, oh, I'll obey. I'll obey in the big things, but in the little things, they don't really matter. Nobody's going to see it. I'm the king. I'll just set these little things aside. It's, it's not going to make a big difference. Nobody's going to tell about it. it it's, it's nothing important. Who cares? But First Samuel 16, 1, that we read this morning says that God refused him. You see, obedience wasn't a big deal to King Saul, but it was a big deal to God. And can I say today, college students, that your disobedience may not be a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to God. Now I want us to turn our focus to David. Saul comes to the house of Jesse, like we read a minute ago, and he begins to look through the kings, and, or through the sons of Jesse, excuse me, and as he goes through each son, God says, I haven't chosen him. And Samuel, I haven't chosen him, and I haven't chosen him. And Samuel gets through every one of the sons, and God's not chosen any of them if you could, direct your attention to verse 11 with me of 1 Samuel 16. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, catch this, he keepeth the sheep. It wasn't a big task. It wasn't anything that would have been deemed important. But David was obedient. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing in the pasture. And if David wasn't obedient in the pasture to his Father, then how in the world could God expect him to be obedient to God in the palace? You know, if we can't be obedient to the handbook here at college while we are in the pasture, if we can't be obedient to God's Word while we are here at college in the pasture, and this summer at our internships and at the different ministries that we go to, if we can't be obedient now, then what makes us think that when we get out in ministry one day and we are out in the palace that all of a sudden we're going to be obedient? All of a sudden, we're gonna follow the rules of that ministry and we're gonna we're gonna follow the commands that are found in the Word of God. No, friends, it doesn't work that way. If we're not obedient in the pasture, then we can't be obedient in the palace. In the pasture, David learned to have a pure heart. He learned to be obedient, and finally, would you notice with me? He learned to be faithful. If you could look down with me at verse number 19, Samuel, or excuse me, David has been anointed as king. But then the, the focus of the chapter shifts back to King Saul back in the palace. And an evil spirit has come on King Saul. And his servants come to him and they say, King Saul, we think you need to have someone come in and play music for you. I think it would help with your spirit. And by the way, music is so important. But they say, King Saul, we need you to have somebody come in to play music. And we've heard about David, the son of Jesse, who's cunning on the harp. And, David, or, and King Saul is going to call David in. If you could draw your attention to verse 19. Wherefore, Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, catch this, which is with the sheep. This is after David has been anointed as king. He he is next up to be the king of Israel, of God's chosen people. And what does he do? He just goes back to the sheep. Just back to being faithful. He could have said, Dad, I'm done with your dumb sheep. Do you not realize I'm next in command here in Israel? God, I'm not following, or or, excuse me, Father, I'm not following you and and going back to your dumb sheep. Dad, I've got more important things to do. But he didn't. He was just faithful. God, I'm called to full-time ministry. God, I'm going to be a pastor or a missionary or a church planner one day. God, I don't have time now while I'm in the pasture to spend time just reading your word and praying and go soul winning on Saturday and serving in my weekly ministry. I don't have time this summer to go soul winning. God, I've got to begin to save money and to get ready to pay my next school bill, and I just don't have time to serve you, God, because one day I'm going to be out in ministry serving you. It doesn't work that way. You see, David was faithful in the pasture before he ever got out to the palace. Don't quit on God this summer, college students. Don't give up what you started here. We've had a great year. We've seen God do some great things here at West Coast but as you go home this summer, remain faithful. Moreover, it is required in stewards, it is required in stewards that a man be found fruitful? No, faithful. Hey, can I encourage you as you go home this summer, be faithful. David turned out to be the greatest king that ever ruled in Israel. God said, he is a man after mine own heart. God used David greatly, as we see later on and ...in the Word of God, and we see the great things that were done through the life of David... ...but it all began in the pasture. How? He was pure, he was obedient, and he was faithful. Hey, look, guys, I, I want to be used out in the palace one day. I want God to use my life to do something through me. When I go to, in October to Jackson, Georgia... ...and serve at Lighthouse Baptist Church as the youth pastor with my soon-to-be wife... ...I want God to use me there... I want to see teenagers come to know Christ as their Savior, and I want to see our youth group grow, and I want to see young people give their life to the Lord and serve Him, but it's not magically just going to happen here in the palace. No, it's going to begin back in the pasture. Hey, don't you want God to use you in ministry one day? Don't you want to see many souls come to to know Him through your life? Don't you want to see out in the mission field God use you and bless you and do great things through you? But friends, it doesn't start in the palace. It doesn't start one day. It's not just going to happen. No, no, no. It begins in the pasture. How? You're pure, you're obedient, and you're faithful. Hey, can I ask you one more time today? What are you doing with your time in the pasture?
1: at the cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote sacred head for such a worm as I? The cross at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day.
5: Morning, y'all. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to be here with you guys today and to be able to preach. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 is where we're going to be heading today, and I'm so thankful for the guys that have gone before me, and it's been a blessing and challenge to my hearts, and I'd like to also take a moment and just say thank you to Dr. Getch and the faculty here for having this opportunity. To me, there's no greater joy than preaching, because I know it's God's calling in my life, and there's nothing else that I'd rather get to do, nothing I'm more thankful to have the opportunity to do than to get to stand before you, but yet I'm humbled and thankful to be able to be here. As you're turning in your Bibles, you find yourself in Mark chapter 10. I'd like you to read just two verses with me today. Verses 21 and verse 22. It says, starting in 21, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. God is calling disciples. Today we're going to look at this story. You may recognize that this chapter is the story of the man that we know as the rich young ruler. He's a man that God called to follow him, a man that God called to be his disciple, yet he chose not to. And as we look at that this morning, I want you to consider with what is a disciple? If you think like me, maybe the first word that comes to your mind is the word follower. The word follower and the word disciple, they're very synonymous, and even in the message today, I'll probably use them interchangeably a little bit. But a disciple is much more than simply A follower. A definition I have here for a disciple, a disciple is a normal person who has chosen to dedicate his life fully to Christ, willingly forsaking his own life and will to follow the Savior and reproducing other disciples in obedience to God's command, which leads me to a question I want you to consider this morning. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple of of Jesus Christ. Being a disciple is a choice. You don't just live the Christian life long enough and all of a sudden wake up one day and bam, I'm a disciple. I'm a committed follower of Jesus Christ. No, it's a choice that we make every single day. And maybe you've already started making that choice, but if not, I encourage you, consider making today the day that you start. Today is the day to choose to be a disciple. And as tonight we look at this man, again, we know him as a rich young ruler. We don't know his name, but we know that he missed an opportunity To be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want you to consider with me three truths that we find in the story of this rich young ruler that apply to every single one of us in here today. As we look at these, the first truth I want you to consider with me, number one, there's a call. We see the call that Christ gives this young man of discipleship. I love verse 21. It says, and Jesus beholding him loved him. When you get a call from someone that you love and someone that loves you, it's not something to dread. It's not something to fear. In fact, it's something we look forward to receiving. We look forward to getting a call from someone that we love. And the call of Christ should be no different for each of us today. The call of Christ is given to us out of a heart of love. God doesn't call us because he wants to see us live a life of, of poverty in the ministry or be miserable somewhere. No, he calls us because he loves us. And he knows that the best life we can live is when we are living a life fully sold out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's why he calls us to be disciples. The call of Christ for this rich young man, though, it was twofold. It was twofold. Come and follow. Come and follow. This is the command and the call of Christ to this young man. You said, that seems really simple, but come and follow, I think these are two words that work so well together, even though they're so similar. What does it mean to come? To come, you have to leave where you're at. You have to leave where you're comfortable. You have to take a step away from where you're complacent and where you're used to being. To come, you have to go to somewhere new and take a step of faith. And Christ is calling us today to come to Him. Are you willing to take that first step and come to Christ? The beautiful thing is, God's already taken the first step towards us. He sent His Son to die on the cross thousands of years ago for my sin and for your sin. He took a step down from heaven. The least we can do is take a step out for Him, a step of faith, and say, Lord, I come. And the beautiful thing is, when we say, hey, I'm going to come to Him, God's promised that when we draw nigh unto God, He will draw nigh unto us. He's not going to run away from you when you come to Him. He's standing there waiting for you to come to Him. But not only is this call to come, this call is to follow. Maybe you're sitting there saying, Josh, what's the difference? What's the difference between coming and following? I'm so glad you asked. Following is a daily step-to-step choice. Coming is a decision to say, hey, I'm coming. Following is tomorrow saying, I'm taking another step. And the next day, I'm taking another step. And the next day, I'm taking another step. I am going to follow after Christ each and every day. And it's only when we make that decision that we can move forward for the cause of Christ. It is one step at a time. It is a commitment of a lifetime. But as we consider this calling, there's a second truth that comes right alongside it. Not only was there a calling, but with that calling, there came a cost. There was a cost for this young man to follow Christ. And this cost is what did him in. He balked at this cost and was unwilling to pay the cost that Jesus said it was going to cost. Now, as we look at this, I think all of us will face the same two costs that this young man did today. There's a price that we will all have to pay there's nothing in life worth doing that's free. I can remember my dad saying, growing up, there's no such thing as free lunch, right? There's a cost with everything. Whether people say there are, whether they say there's not, there's a cost. So let's consider the cost today of discipleship. The first thing that it cost this young man was his possessions. It was going to cost him what he owned. And that's where this young man, we see that he was grieved. He said he had much possessions. Christ calls him to sell all that he had. He said, give it to the poor whatsoever you have and come and follow me. As I consider this story, Christ called other disciples, and we know that they forsook what they had and followed him, but we never see this command to sell all, get rid of it all. They could have easily left it with family members or friends, but Jesus called this young man to sell everything he had, give it all away to the poor, and follow me. As I considered, why would Christ call this man specifically to do that? I believe it boils down to one reason. Jesus knew where his heart was. His heart was wrapped up in his possessions. His heart was tied up with the things that he owned. And Christ knew that until he got rid of all of those and got them far away, he could never follow Christ fully. So young person, what is it today, friend, that you're holding on so tightly that you can't take a step and follow God more fully? Maybe it's a job at home. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's just money in general and you'll do anything to make a buck. There's nothing bad with those things necessarily individually. But if God's calling you to leave it behind, then you have to leave it behind. You have to step out from that. You have to step away from that and choose to follow Christ. I challenge you this morning, if there's anything in your life, and I want you to think with me, that if someone said, hey, you have to give this up to follow Christ, and you would hesitate about it for a half second, consider it well, because that may be what causes you to stumble and not follow Christ as you could. But it didn't only cost this young man his possessions. It cost him his pride. If we look at the preceding verses, starting verse 17 down to verse 20 leading into 21, we won't take the time to read it, but we find that this young man took pride in who he was. He said he had kept the law since he was young. He said, hey, I have been a good Jew. I have followed everything that I needed to follow, and I've done well. Yet Jesus points out one thing that he lacked, and I think that hurt him, and it cut him. He felt like he had it all put together. He felt like he had it all. And yet Christ exposes him for who he truly is inside. Friends, if you want to be a follower of Christ, we have to take a step away from our pride. So often I think in Bible college it's easy to take pride even in good things. We say, hey, I serve in this ministry. I serve in two ministries. I serve in three ministries. We had this many people on my bus route today. I saw this many souls saved. And all of these are good in and of themselves until we take pride in it. We say, hey, look what I did. I got these kids on my bus route today. I was able to reach these people. Yeah, that, that was cool, that was me. No, it's not, it's God. Everything we do is God. Friend, if you want to follow Christ, you have to leave pride at the door. If there's no place for it as a disciple of Christ. And as we look at this conversation, this dialogue between Christ and this rich young ruler, it comes here finally to this point of culmination, this point of decision that Christ gives to this young man. We've seen Christ call to him. We've seen the cost that Christ told him he's going to have to pay. But finally, we see there's a choice. There's a choice given to this young man by Jesus Christ. He leaves him with two options and only two. And those same two options are available for me and for you today. You can choose to be part of the fretful or you can choose to be part of the faithful. That was the decision this young man had to make. He didn't have a long time to make it. Jesus is asking him right now now. I think so often it's easy to jump all over this young man's case for his decision to not follow in the footsteps of Christ because, man, why wouldn't we do that? But yet so often we're guilty of making the wrong decision here each and every day in our lives as Christians, y'all. It's easy. We've all done it if we're being honest with ourselves. We've all made this decision wrong. So let's consider these two options. Number one, the fretful. There's a couple components here I'd like to unpack for a second. As we consider this rich young ruler, we never see a point that he's given his life totally to Christ. We never see a moment of salvation in his lifetime. He doesn't follow Christ. And that leads to something that's not just fretful in this moment, but he would have been fretful for eternity unless he came to Christ later in his life. We have no idea what this man chose. He was interested in Christ. But maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're at Bible college, you've been here for a year, two, three, four, I don't know how long. But maybe you know in your heart of hearts that you haven't made that choice today to get saved and to take that first step in being a disciple and choosing to follow Christ And that's salvation and if you haven't chosen that today i plead with you today is the day to take that step don't wait another day but then secondly maybe you're sitting here like hey joshua i'm a christian i am saved what does this mean for me why would i choose to be part of this fretful group as we look at that i think that we so often choose it i want you to, to think about this with me this young man chose not to follow christ he was sad because he lost his money i heard him the word grievous there used to describe him means that a cloud came over his face. It affected his countenance. Everyone could see that he was displeased. Consider this with me. You know God's calling you to do something. Maybe today you're sitting here on the fence about what God's calling you to do. Maybe you're questioning, did God really call me to ministry? Did God really call me to Bible college? I came for one year. I tested the waters. I've been here, but I don't know about next year, and I don't know about the future. But yet you have that tug in your heart that you can't get away from. God's put that calling on your life. But you're scared and you're thinking about going home and staying there. I want you to consider this with me. You can go home. You can get a job at home. You can work a job there, be involved in your church and do great. I'm sure you can be a blessing to your pastor. But how's it going to feel 10 years from now when your roommate who's been on the mission field for 10 years is back on furlough and he stops by your church and you're sitting there in a pew and the only thing that is bouncing through your head is it should have been me. I was called by Christ to go be a part of a mission field or to go plant a church or to go share the gospel and evangelism. But I chose not to. I acted in fear. I guarantee you that was going through this rich young ruler's mind every day as he heard reports of Christ's ministry. Hey, there were blind men healed. Lepers were cleansed. Lame men are now walking. And all that's rattling through this young man's head. I could have been there. I could have had a part of this. And I didn't. And he had no one to blame except for himself. But fortunately, that is not the only decision that's on the table. There is a second option that we can choose, and that's to be part of the faithful. And I dare say that's what all of us would say we want to be today. I want my life to be marked by faithfulness. I dare say we all say that, but it's so hard to live out this life of faith. As we consider this, I like to use the analogy of of a sports team. When you go and try out for a sports team, maybe you enjoy sports, maybe you don't. But I think you'll catch the principle here. Nobody ever goes and tries out for a basketball team or a football team and says, hey, I want to sit on the bench. That's what I want to do. I want to be on the bench. I want to sit on the sideline all season, don't want to touch the field, and I'm going to be happy and content right here. Go team. (laughs) But yet, so often as Christians, we are so happy and content to sit on the bench. We say, hey, I'm happy over here. I can sit here. I can do my Sunday ministry. I can be a little bit happy and be involved in this ministry and do this. I don't want to be on the field. I don't want to do it full-time. I'll be involved in a church. Sure, I'll, I'll attend church. I'll go to church. But man, a, a full-time ministry calling, I don't know if I can do that. But yet, that's what God wants you to do. And like can I tell you, Christian, get serious about being on the field. Be on the field for Christ. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be found. When revival comes, I want to be on the front lines. I want to be out there preaching the gospel, planting churches, seeing revival. Come to this nation. Where do you want to be? Sure, there's a place for people on the sideline. But I'd rather be cheering my teammates on while I'm on the field next to them. Where are you going to choose to be today? Where will you choose to be today? The field is the place to be. I don't want to just watch people make a difference. I want to make a difference. I believe that's the desire of a lot of us in this room today. But will you act on it? I found a quote as I was studying this out from a a young man in Zimbabwe. This was found written in, in his desk after he was martyred for his faith. He was killed ...because he was a disciple of Christ. I think this letter gives insight into his life and thoughts. And I think he's the polar opposite of this rich young ruler. I think he summarizes discipleship better than anything else I know could. And I want to share this with you today. This young man wrote, he said, "...the die has been cast, the decision has been made, I have stepped over the line. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure." I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk with patience, live by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is faithful, and my mission is clear. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or sled up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and spoken up. For the cause of Christ, I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner is clear. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. Wow. That's the kind of testimony that we all should want to have. But the choice is yours. Will you choose to be part of the fretful or part of the faithful? Will you choose to be a disciple of Jesus Christ?